0: You are listening to a White Phosphorus Pictures Podcast. Casting under the night sky from the edge of an undisclosed jungle on the Gulf of Mexico, I'm Christopher Garretano, your voice in the night. For the next hour, allow me to be your guide into the bizarre unknown, the fantastic macabre, and together we'll journey to that borderland between fiction and reality, a place beyond all rational explanation. We are now Off to the Witch. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another Off to the Witch newsletter. For those of you who are new to Off to the Witch, uh, the newsletter is an alternate week podcast. It's a little more free form than my regular structure, and the normal episodes have a guest and um, a theme that I stick to. However, uh, the newsletter is also thematic in its own right, somewhat to update you on everything I'm doing, which I'll do in a moment, and also uh, it's... To discuss a few things that, you know, I like topics that I discuss on the show, but usually when I have a guest, it's their moment, it's their show, and I want them to tell their story. And I usually have a few to tell or ideas or perspectives in the newsletter format, which eventually the newsletters are going to evolve into some kind of open lines, voice in the night radio show, which I explained a few uh, newsletters back. So before I get into the theme of this particular newsletter, I wanted to update you on some of the things I'm doing. The projects that I'm working on outside of Off to the Witch, uh, for those of you who don't know, I've made um, television shows and documentaries and movies. And so that range from my motion picture that came out in 2015, Montauk Chronicles. It's, um, It's a docudrama. It has real people in it. But my style of... Documentary filmmaking is more like docu-art because I'm a I'm a filmmaker a true filmmaker at heart So my approach is from that artistic perspective, you know, my uh, my filmmaking heroes that were making documentaries were like Werner Herzog and uh, even uh, Eleanor Coppola or people like that that really captured a moment in time but they were always making art throughout the process and so a lot of modern day documentaries uh especially the ones on Netflix or even the paranormal documentaries seem to follow the same uh homogenous uh format they're all kind of copying off of each other and that's not my race and that's not my gig I don't I don't do stuff like that um I take a uh, my time with things and I really have a deep interest in the subject matter but also the style and how it's portrayed and so uh, my new documentary, A Haunting We Will Go, is the epitome of that. It's everything that I've learned over the years being put into the style and the execution of what you're about to see, but also what I grew up with and how it's come full circle in life. And the theme of tonight's episode follows that. am um, just really quick on a couple of things. A Haunting We Will Go is coming out beautifully. It's the best docu-cinema that I've made so far. And, um, you know, I've taken some time with it uh, throughout other projects. Um, I've had various uh, movie and, and documentary projects throughout this whole process, one of which is a long ingestation project called South Texas Blues. Essentially, it's a motion picture drama about what happened on the set of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 1973, the making Of that infamous movie that has now gone on to be a major part of pop culture. And I have a few words to discuss uh, some of those things later in terms of what inspired it. But South Texas Blues is, is happening. You know, I've had so many opportunities to discuss the possibility of making that film at one point I was going to make it for you know barely any money at all and just get everybody I could hands on deck to make it whatever I could do to make it and um because the the story means so much to me late last year I published the the screenplay and it's available now on Amazon if you want to read the script now it's going to be expanded slightly and obviously I'm taking on that job for um for the miniseries that's coming Uh, But I I have a way, a strong way to expand it. I feel like my script itself is, is what it needs to be. And, um, you know, I had a lot of years to really think about that screenplay. And there's so many stories surrounding the making of that movie. But as a writer, you have to decide what works, what doesn't and what furthers your story, the story you're writing. So this this project that has gone through so many evolutions from the time that I thought of it, I mean, I was in film school in 1997 when the idea really first came to me to write this as a movie. I started writing it in the early 2000s. And then, um, you know, over the years, I rewrote it and, and retooled it and rethought it. And the reason why this story is so powerful to me is because I've I've lived the main character's feelings during that particular story if we rewind back to 1973 toby hooper was not a famous horror director he was virtually unknown he felt like he had the weight of the world on his shoulders and he was 30 years old and he was putting everything he had into that movie regardless of anyone around him that either disliked him disagreed with him, didn't take him seriously. And that passion and intensity that goes into a work that's not expected to be great. Uh, I think most movie makers, serious movie makers knows what that, they know what that feels like. Francis Coppola is a great example of that. Um, he is an incredible movie maker and, but it's, it's so odd because the man would make a movie like the Godfather, and The Godfather 2, or The Conversation before that, right? And get praise for his work, win Academy Awards, all right, when they actually kind of meant something, and then is faced with the doubt of press and people around him when he's making Apocalypse Now, a little bit later in the 70s. And they're expecting it to fail and, you know, saying this movie's falling apart, it's never going to get made. And by the end of it, Apocalypse Now is one of the greatest motion pictures ever made, and it just goes to show you how people surround a person like this and isolate someone who is so convicted and so adhered to that dream and to that vision. And a lot of people really don't know from the outside uh, seeing that. So South Texas blues is the, the deepest expression of what it's like to go through this thing where there aren't many high expectations. You know, the, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, when it was being made, had very low expectations for many of the people around it. Even most of the actors that went on to um, enjoy the attention that the movie created for them years later didn't think it was going to go anywhere, and they admit to that. And so the case of the character of Toby Hooper in South Texas Blues is a very intense, misunderstood. Character, Um, and I think a lot of movie makers are that because many people just simply could not understand internally what's going on with someone when they're so adhered to this project and they need it. They, you know, they're they're attached to its construction and its design and every meticulous moment. Where I was coming from with this is the story of a filmmaker, and from from my perspective, the only person. That could tell the full story was Toby Hooper. He was there the whole time. A lot of these people were there for a few days, there for a week, there for two weeks, but Toby was there throughout the entire process, beginning, middle, end, and further. And he was the only one I think that we could understand a story of a, of a movie maker so possessed by their work uh, when when all other people around him kind of lost faith, and so. You know, the screenplay, I'm not giving anything away, but the very end of the screenplay doesn't end with a big party at a film festival where, you know, uh, where people are walking in front of Step and Repeat and receiving these rinky dink awards. It ends with a man, at that time, movies were edited uh, on a machine called a Steenbeck. And so he had a Steenbeck on his kitchen table, okay? And he's alone. And the camera moves away from him and he's cutting. Film by himself in his kitchen, and he has no idea what's going to happen next. And that, to me, is so fascinating. To me, that's paranormal—to create something, and and put your passion and conviction into it, and have no idea if it's going to affect anyone, or it could change the world. To me, that is is so f- eternally fascinating. So, um, and you don't know when either. You know, sometimes things are made you know, if we go back to painters and artwork, their work is is posthumous, you know, sometimes these brilliant artists will, will paint, and they live a very, uh, austere, and in a lot of cases, um, you know, they're destitute, they have nothing, but their paintings are left behind, and then later they're being sold for millions and millions of dollars, and they change the world of art, they change perspective, they enlighten brains, so to me this whole concept is fascinating, and, um, so that's my approach to everything even this podcast you know i don't i have no interest whatsoever in in regurgitating other people's stories uh for a few bucks on youtube like i said if it works out on youtube fantastic if it doesn't i'm fine with that too there people are listening elsewhere the idea of this is to have you all come to a place where i can share all of this stuff with you cuz on this youtube channel you'll get to um see behind the scenes of South Texas Blues, of the further documentaries I'm about to finish and make. You'll get to see previews. You'll get to see so many things forthcoming that I'm working on uh, in multiple stages. And um, I'm excited to share it with you because I know the people that listen get what I'm putting out there. I see their responses and I understand that they are receiving it the way I hope they would. And I always stick to my guns. I don't change for anybody. I mean, I'll evolve over time, but I'm, I won't change just to meet some algorithm and be just like everybody else. I'll never do what everyone else is doing. And honestly, in the world of the mysterious and paranormal, there are very few filmmakers in this world. They, you know, I, some of them are trying to attempt to make documentaries as, as some kind of accessory to what they do. To me, I find that a little disrespectful to filmmaking, but it's I don't I don't believe they're approaching it as filmmakers. Um, they just want to have a, a documentary about what they do, and that's fine. But my approach is so different than that. I'm not one of these people. For instance, um, when I, um, you know, was making television shows, my first TV special came after a documentary that I made called Montauk Chronicles. So when we were in the boardroom. Um, in, in development and pre-production for the Dark Files. That's when it came about that they wanted me to host. And I was interested in that for several reasons. I felt um, it could work. I felt I could take on the other work because I was directing as well and I was doing other things behind the scenes and, uh, and a very active producer of the show. So I felt I could handle all of those roles, and I did. And then, of course, that led to my series where I was hosting... Every episode, and um, and now I'm hosting my documentaries. But I, tr- you'll notice that it it shifts. It's not so much of me, and I'm not interested in that anyway. I I want you to see me, and I want you to see how I interact with people, and it's personalized, like my television shows have been. And today's today's um, theme revolves around that, and it, you know I've been so immersed in working on A Haunting We Will Go that uh, in post-production that I, um, I wanted to share with you something I was inspired to talk about that I do talk about in the documentary because it's thematically aligned with it. So, you know, the, re- the reason why I brought up South Texas Blues is that it's, all, it's aligned with my sensibilities. Everything I'm doing is... I've turned down network projects because they weren't aligned with me. I'm not one of these guys that you're just going to see on a group holding devices running around, you know, trying to go into a house and pretend like it's haunted, whether it's haunted or not, but just to make, you know, make the deadline to get the episode done. That's not me. I have nothing to do with that. I'm a movie maker, I'm a writer. I have a deep interest in the mysteries of the world and that borderline between fiction and reality. That is my eternal theme for most of the work that I have forthcoming. And so, and that's also today's theme as well, because we can talk about it so much. And, um, I wonder if we're going through some kind of, you know, dimensional shift or if something's happening, or even our perspective is evolving as the perspective of, of every living being kind of does you know we're we're our, our perspective isn't fixed and locked and we might be witnessing a change in consciousness and that's fantastic cuz that's happened before and perhaps sometimes there are peaks and valleys sometimes consciousness dips and it gets low which i think we've witnessed in the last few years but i believe we're due for an upswing and i talked about that on the last episode i i see a dip in consciousness i see a dip in how people behave and how people waste their time and arguing and fighting and you know they're 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 hell-bent on vengeance and jealousy and this is not us we are not to be this way we have been taught for many years not to handle things that way and I think a better time is up ahead for our consciousness for for how we're going to behave I, I believe we're due for it and I think it's coming so I'm actually I am actually excited to be a movie maker and a writer uh, in, in the age in this new age, that's forthcoming to make my motion pictures in this new age, perhaps, um, you know, the majority of my movies haven't been made yet because they, they needed to be made in this new age. And I, you know, sometimes I, I think about that. I don't think it's pretentious to think that way. I believe there's a clockwork to our design and our universe. And I believe that things happen for a reason. And we learn lessons every day. When you're a child and your mind is filled with wonder and it's, it's coming from all of these directions, essentially that's kind of how A Haunting We Will Go opens. It opens with my childhood. It opens with something that happened when I was a kid that kind of set everything forward for me. But then we open to that place where the land of make-believe that scares you as a child, that gives you nightmares... You're told is exactly that. It's make-believe, go back to sleep. There's nothing to fear. Obviously, our parents want us to get to sleep for good reason. You know, they don't want to be up all night with a kid having nightmares or crying or worried about the boogeyman. However, all of the things that created that fear for me as a kid, or I would say many of them, uh, or, for all of us, because we were all collectively watching these things, or at least the one you know the the kids that were permitted, I grew up in a video store, so my parents were a little more lax about what I could and could not see. However, they didn't like it when I had nightmares or couldn't fall asleep because of what I watched, and I was really thinking about this that a good variety of these things that they told us wasn't real, you know that they told us didn't exist or don't doesn't exist are real because we have true accounts of all of these things so for instance you know and i have a few things on the list tonight there was a series of horror films that i watched like a lot of kids do and uh, probably even more so today because they're so embedded in pop culture but when i was a kid i was terrified when i saw friday the 13th i would say one through We'll go as far as five to say they were really scary when I was a kid you know they were because they were coming out when I was a kid you know I was alive through each of those releases and um you're watching this movie and you have this deformed vengeful killer living kind of reclusive and feral in the woods Jason Voorhees and you have people going into the woods for recreation kids camp counselors, a variety of people, get murdered by this creepy bastard, this this mask-wearing, weapon-wielding maniac, deformed, demented, killing people in a variety of ways, Uh, I think the first image that scared the living hell out of me on the very first Friday the 13th was the idea of Jason or Jason's ghost or this dream sequence where Jason comes flying out of the water at the very end. It's supposed to be, you know, it was a surprise to audiences. They didn't expect that. And it was terrifying. There was this deformed boy covered in, you know, muck and seaweed or whatever was inside the, uh, the lake. And, uh, he jumps alice is the you know escaping this horrible night of her friends getting killed and she just beheaded jason's mother and he jumps out of the water and pulls her down into the the dark lake that whole image the music harry manfredini's music that moment where he jumped out because there was this sweet music being played and they were setting you up for this and then this savage deformed angry monster child jumps out of the lake and pulls this girl down after this harrowing ordeal of murder after murder that was committed by his mother. Uh, I couldn't sleep after that. And so I'm told this type of character isn't real. Now I'm watching these because again, you know, horror has that effect on kids or on people in general. It it attracts and repels you at the same time. So We wanted to see more of these, and they made more, obviously, because it was a box office smash, Friday the 13th, and there were a lot of people anticipating a sequel. So they decide to make, which Jason, I guess it was ambiguous whether or not Jason was real, if you just consider the very first movie and nothing that came after it. However, he's real in the second one, and you know many, many, many that came later, it got so stupid he ended up in space. So... Uh, on a spaceship. Uh, But at that time, he was just a a man living reclusively in the woods. Now we're told these things are not real uh, as a kid, but they are real. And if you were to consider David Politis' um, Missing 411 series, now a lot of people uh, think of some of those and I covered that in an episode of Strange World, my, my series for, for uh, Travel Discovery Channel. And I'll put a link to my missing series in the description of this episode so you can watch it. But I covered the idea of uh, other dimensions for all these missing cases that were very real, people just disappearing. But mind you, true investigators could not find the answers and ruled out that animals had taken them, that they fell somewhere, that you know nothing could be proven. It was just baffling, and so many of these cases are, that I think some of the people involved do consider that there are reclusive mountain men, people not unlike Jason Voorhees living in the woods. Now, I'm going to talk about a case in a second that um, lends to that, and that it, w- it was quite recent. But if you think about movies like The Hills Have Eyes, Wes Craven, another one of the great horror directors who had passed away, Hills Have Eyes was based on a true story. It was based, in fact, on a man named Alexander Shawnee Bean. He had a clan of about 45 inbred relatives, okay, 16th century Scotland, and allegedly there was over a thousand people murdered by these people. This is a very true story. Even though it happened in the 16th century, it's just as real as something that may have happened last week somewhere, okay? I think it's infinitely more terrifying than the hills have eyes um, because they would rob, steal, kill, torture, everything else you can think of, and um, they would eat their victims. They would cannibalize them. So there's a, a cave of 45 different hungry, you know, hills have eyes type people, murdering people in 16th century Scotland. And so Wes Craven was inspired by that story to make a modern day version of it. That was the only adjustment that had happened in uh, the late 70s. And so that's one of the movies I saw as a kid. Another one, like Friday the 13th, that they said to me isn't real, but it was real. And somewhere on this planet right now, there's something Infinitely more terrifying happening. So, those are two allegedly fictitious stories uh, that have a lot of truth to them. Now, there was a story that surfaced in July of 2019 that really caught my attention because this was after we had already filmed uh, the episode, the missing episode for Strange World, and it was um, only a month away from. Being broadcast on television, a sixty-year-old woman named Cheryl Powell disappeared for a few days in a national park, Bristol Cone Pine Forest area in California, and um, you know they couldn't find her, and they were looking for her, and this was at that time, you know, when I when they first reported that she was missing, I was like, this is just another case of people just mysteriously vanishing. However, a few days later she appeared and she was alive and they found her. And her story was that a man was in the woods with a knife. Okay. And then she ran away from this man. It's comparable to these, these movie slashers, these monster in the wood types that we've seen in, in motion pictures for many years. You know, there was like a, a real cheap slasher film that I think is quite terrifying at times called The Prey you know came out and came out in the early 80s a Friday the 13th ripoff type movie but there are moments in there that are terrifying they were terrifying when I was a kid and they're terrifying now because when you think about Cheryl Powell's story it's tantamount to those movies a man in the woods in the middle of nowhere with a knife you know that's what this is so when you're having those nightmares as a child and you're saying, hey, I, you know, I'm scared this, this monster is going to come and get me because when we were kids, a lot of those slasher films, those were our monsters, you know, um, no longer were they, the, uh, the mythical monsters of universal pictures, even though I grew up on those as well, they were much less terrifying than what was being shown to us, uh, you know, that born out of the late seventies and the early eighties or even the early 70s in the case of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, But in Cheryl Powell's case, you know, she, whatever the intentions were of this man in the woods with the knife, I think there are reclusive mountain men. I think there are people living out there in the wilderness that are not unlike the Shawnee Bean clan, or Jason, or some of these other characters that we've seen in these horror films. They're out there. And... You know, a word of caution to any of my listeners, and I've, I've met a few people along the way that um, so nonchalantly trust in nature. You know, nature is uh, could be a violent, a dark, mysterious place, and I wouldn't just go out there uh, to go and get your selfies for Instagram in the middle of nowhere by yourself you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable to a lot of different known elements and unknown elements. And the proof is in stories like Cheryl Powell's story. She was out there with her dog. Luckily, both her and the dog survived. But imagine to be walking in the woods and you see in horror films all your life, this same scenario, and now you're in it. And, you know, other more horrible films that I saw later, like Last House on the Left. I mean, that's a very real scenario. Um, a movie like Maniac, very real. These things exist. They exist in the world. And um, they are not fiction. Uh, you know, they're, they're very true stories that are renamed and reshaped somewhat. But the essential meaning and the incidents are very true. The capabilities of, of the human monster is far more terrifying than any horror film that's ever been made. If you were in the room, Uh, to witness what some of these real monsters have done. Every horror film that's ever been crafted would pale in comparison in terms of the terror that you would feel. So, uh, you know, especially after reading those missing 411 cases and then doing my own investigation, there is no way I would go out into those national parks alone or at least unarmed or prepared for something to uh, assault Uh, my existence, you know, only because there have been so many cases of very able-bodied people, strong people, even armed people going missing without a trace. That's the whole thing. You know, hunters have gone missing without a trace. And so the wilderness is no joke. And, you know, I've heard a lot of people say, well, it's a dog man that's doing it. Well, it's Bigfoot doing it. But in the case of Cheryl Powell, There's evidence and eyewitness her to support that there is a man out there, that there are strange men or strange people out there. Rewinding way back to 16th century to the Shawnee Bean Clan. These are real things that have happened. Now, um, not so far in the wilderness and close to home. So I grew up at a time in the early eighties, you know, um, Early and mid-80s, it was my formative years. I was absorbing everything from the most elaborate cartoons of the day to toys to, you know, old classic horror films to the current horror films. And at that time, I was watching movies like Friday the 13th and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And even this one summer, I believe it was the summer of of 84, you know, we had a new Friday the 13th on its way. And um, I grew up in a town in New York uh, called Northport. And, um, you know, it's a quiet little harbor town. A lot of the uh, towns in the north shore of Long Island, New York, are like that. And, you know, I later lived in New York City. But, um, but I grew up in that area with these little sleepy little harbor towns. And, um, you know, I, I remember being outside... And that summer, again, you know, I had already picked up on the special effects makeup bug. I wanted to be a movie maker back then. You know, I read Fangoria magazine. I was excited about all the new creations and creatures and movies that were coming out. And I I was a young boy with a head full of uh, wonder. And it wasn't just horror films that I liked. I loved fantasy and animation and everything you could think of, just like many of the kids of the day. You know, I think we were very fortunate to have... Such a strong variety at that time if your parents had allowed it, and mine did. And so I remember being outside, and my grandmother coming outside, screaming for me to come into the house. She came outside, and she was saying, get in the house now. I believe on the news, they had just heard that a young man, teenage kid, was found in the woods with an extreme amount of stab wounds all over his body, and his eyes were carved out. Later, we came to find that the murderer's name was Ricky Casso. and he was a local kid in Northport. He had some drug issues. He had personality and anger issues, obviously. The teenager that he murdered's name is Gary Lowers, and immediately the town went into a panic that there was Satan on the mind of all these young kids, that the murders were Satanic, And that this kid, Ricky Casso, was part of a group called Knights of the Black Circle. Um, And uh, a lot of this was somewhat amplified and fabricated. But Casso himself was definitely absorbed by the dark side. I disagree with people just saying he was a regular kid. A regular kid doesn't carve out the eyes of his friend and stab him 60 times or however many times he stabbed him. Murder somebody. That's not a normal kid. He had some darkness an extreme amount in his life. The news came in that, that once Castle was caught for the murder and he was in jail awaiting his trial, uh, he hung himself. And that was actually on July 7th, my birthday of that year. There are those who say that this quiet town holds many secrets. Legend has it that beneath this very tower, a dark force had its eyes set on the children. We were told that what was going on there was for the benefit of humanity. What would you say to the people who say, well, all these children were kidnapped and murdered and you were a part of it. What would you tell them? Did you I tell did them? approve of it. There was nothing I could do about it. They wanted a large number of programmed boys to be used for mind control operations. And there are others who say it's still happening to this day. I don't know, I for myself find it a little suspicious that All the evidence has been conveniently destroyed. Let's put it this way. If you're sitting there with 20 guns pointed at you, what are you going to do? Whatever the hell they want! Watch Montauk Chronicles now for free on Tubi, Plex, Roku, and available for download on Amazon and Apple TV. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. This series presents information based in part on theory and conjecture. The producer's purpose is to suggest some possible explanations, but not necessarily the only ones, to the mysteries we will examine. that I have my parents telling me that these things aren't real, that they're only in the movies, but they're not. You know, They're very real. They're happening in the woods not far from my house. And um, I thought a lot about that. I thought a lot about this kid getting murdered. You know, My grandmother's so scared that she didn't even want me to be outside in the backyard. I had a really bad dream, I re- and I remember it to this day. And the dream was... My father was boarding up windows, and he was boarding up the windows on the front door of the house. This is in the dream, by the way. And I'm out there handing him nails, and then I look behind me because I heard a noise in the bushes. And then immediately, the door shuts, and nobody's outside but me. And now, this dark figure is walking towards me with this knife, and is staring at me. And I think my mind had created an amalgam of some of these movie slashers that I was watching at the time, because so I remember his face was, you know, somewhat amorphous or, or deformed. It it wasn't human, and it certainly wasn't the images of Ricky Casso that we would see on the news or in the newspaper. But he was walking toward me with this knife, and I remember he had this dark black sweater on and just walking towards me. And I was frozen with fear, and... I remember waking up that night, it's summer, hearing the, the, the night sounds of the crickets and, and waking up by myself, I was terrified. And, you know, a lot of this informs my work to this day. It's not only absorbing movies, but it's also experiencing life and the perspective I had as a kid, those nightmares. You know, I, I have dreams every night. I have very vivid dreams, but I don't have the fear that I had as a child because all these things were new all at the same time. And of course it wasn't all this, it wasn't all negative. You know, I was a, a child who was fascinated at how movies were made. And so, it, you know, it was always about the special effects and how the monsters were created. And, um, but that didn't really lessen the blow too much on if a movie was truly terrifying. It never really took me out of it um, because I was fascinated on two different levels. But there's a the idea of a demonic force does that idea let things in does that idea open someone to that and so the real boogeymen who are out there in society everybody from ricky casso who's seen as kind of a very tragic situation to someone who allowed themselves to go over to the dark side 100 percent which is richard ramirez um you know that was in los angeles uh he was the human epitome of evil, one of them, right? You know, uh, a lot of these serial killer types are wired for this stuff, but they reveled in the idea of something dark and demonic. Richard Ramirez loved it. He wore what everyone in the Satanic Panic feared as a badge. He utilized darker heavy metal. He utilized horror films as his uniform, but should we blame it on that stuff? Well, in his case, perhaps it added to the situation, you know, or he was just inherently attracted to these things because some of us, you know, I love this stuff. I I love it for the aesthetics, the history, the artistry about it, but it doesn't make me want to kill and murder. And I don't believe it ever has. I've never sat and fantasized about doing these things it's just quite interesting that this stuff has existed and over time my perspective evolved into uh just like many people who listen to true crime stories or or reading about things that happen in the world you know you go through these evolutions where it's like wow i can't believe somebody did that but we still want to read about it we still want to know these horrific stories and that's something inside the human being and that's the same mechanism that um, attracts us to horror movies and did for me as a kid as well. It's, it's very mysterious in its own right. But these childhood horrors were all around us. And, um, another one I wanted to talk about is a very well-known situation, but also not very far from my childhood home was the, the Amityville murders beginning with Ron DeFeo murdering his entire family inside that house that eventually George Lutz and his family moved in stayed there for 28 days and left and claimed that the house was violently haunted by demonic forces poltergeists things that were getting in their heads everything you know in the stories it saw in them in the movie and when i'm a kid and i and i see the amityville horror because that's one of the films we frequently watched you know neighborhood kids that weren't allowed to watch horror movies would always come to my house and watch everything with us and um that's one we watched quite a bit and When I learned that the actual occurrence was only 15 minutes away from my house, that's another thing that contradicted what, you know, the adults were telling us to go to sleep. They were trying to put us at ease, but we knew, we knew these things are real. We knew that the murders actually happened in that house. It made it all the more real And not just the story of Ron DeFeo murdering his family, which to this day, people find it hard to believe that a man could kill his sisters, his brother, his mother, and his father. All in one night, in November of 1974, Ron DeFeo murdered his entire family with a rifle in his house in Amityville. It was mysterious to the police because they, to this day, they they have not been able to figure out exactly what happened. There are so many different stories that even came from DeFeo himself, but one of which, he claimed he was possessed. He was being moved. Could this possession be real? Once again, you grow up watching these motion pictures, and adults or people around you are telling you, "No, this is just false. It's just a movie. It's only a movie," but it's not only a movie. There are so many stories in reality that support this. And so, yes, we've seen these things covered in shows and in books so many times. But I think there's, a, there's more of a perspective to achieve with this. And I know that DeFeo had an insanity plea. And then later on, he even said that he was possessed, that he completely believes that he was possessed by a demon to kill his entire family. So I grew up around a lot of crazy stuff. You know, I grew up everything from the Amityville horror story, the murders and the haunting, uh, the Say You Love Satan murder and right in my town of Northport, and, of course, the Montauk Project, the Long Island serial killer much later. All of these things happening, and there's such more of a variety in that area that uh, coupled with all of the movies that I was allowed to watch, this, this stuff really charged my imagination. Another one I wanted to cover was um, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I saw that movie uh, at an age that most people wouldn't be allowed to see it. And of course, it scared the hell out of me as a kid. Um, But I was also assured that it wasn't real. In the late 50s, Ed Gein was arrested for a series of horrific murders in Plainfield, Wisconsin. He was later dubbed the Butcher of Plainfield. And he was the man, that Leatherface of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Buffalo Bill of Silence of the Lambs, and the first Norman Bates of the movie Psycho were all based on Ed Gein, a very real person. Gein's story was infinitely more macabre, in my opinion, than even the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, and what, what Gein did was a variety of horrific things, everything from grave robbing to waiting for the able-bodied men in the town of Plainfield to go out during deer hunting season, and he would start picking people off with his rifle, just walking into the hardware store. He killed a woman named Bernice Warden, who was later found in his shed, dismembered. This was a, a horrific man, but not only that, he would remove the skin from some of the corpses that he would dig up from the cemetery, or some of his victims, and create... A skin suit and a dead skin mask, not unlike what Leatherface did in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So Gein lived in an isolated farmhouse. It wasn't in Texas, but I think these things have occurred other times in recent history that we don't know of. And that's the most terrifying thing. Growing up with all of these stories, I became quite open to moments in life that were similar. And so as fate would have it, during a time, I had many jobs as a a kid and throughout my life, but one of the jobs I had, I was delivering pizzas. And um, I think I was about 16, 17, I'm delivering pizzas. So I get to this guy's house and I knock on the door and guy answers the door and he's really tall, has long stringy hair You know, the house is kind of dim, but I see a light around the corner. And he said, come in. And, uh, you know, I go in with the pizza. I'm just, you know, I just want to get paid. I want to get my change and leave. So the guy's like, take off your shoes. I look up into the kitchen. The kitchen is absolutely a mess. It's filthy. On the table, there was like a plate, like a wooden plate with like sausage on it and a knife, okay? I'm like, immediately, I'm like, I'm in the chainsaw house. But it got even, it started to manifest before my eyes. There was this heavy set guy, his eyes rolling in the back of his head, and his head backwards, and he's mumbling and walking into walls. The older brother guy is sitting at the table just staring at me. And the guy, the tall dude with the long stringy hair is just looking at me, telling me to take my shoes off. And I got a really bad feeling in that house, you know, uh, because my mind was conditioned to associate things with with horror movies. If I ever came close to something that was even remotely similar, I was in, I was in a chainsaw house, a hundred percent. So I kind of just quickly put the pizza down and left because I had a super bad feeling about being in there at the time. Told my boss, hey, I don't know what's up with these guys. And he explained it to me. He said, you know, Um, it's really a messed up family. You have the older brother and then they have the two younger brothers that were uh, let out of the VA hospital and so on and so forth. And I'm like, oh boy. I mean, that's literally very similar to a Texas Chainsaw type scenario. But later, and this is very unfortunate and very tragic, a young girl, teenage girl that lived on that block uh, was murdered by one of the brothers. And one night, I think she went out to sneak a cigarette or something And this guy, one of the guys I saw in that house, was watching her every day, you know, seeing her walk out, probably peering through the window, through the curtains, looking at her. And knew that she walked outside one night, and he attacked her, and he killed her. Now, later, the house was raided, and these guys were removed from the home. But it shows you how real uh, these motion pictures are essentially are. And in fact, the true stories are infinitely more uh, complicated, darker, terrifying uh, than anything that's been portrayed in the movies. It's difficult to find things that are close to reality if you really think about it and you really examine the facts in the case. I think that's why a lot of these um, serial killer type movies are very much from a forensic perspective. And uh, I think it lessens the blow and the idea of what this was really like. However, that Netflix series about uh, Jeffrey Dahmer was quite terrifying. I think it truly did get in the head. But again, if they had ever, if they ever portray it like it really was, if if a movie maker ever portrays these horrific stories like they really are, that's something completely different. And I don't think many people would sit around for it. Um, so that's why it has to be stylized a lot of the time in these in these horror films. So uh, I have to get back to work. I really appreciate you joining me tonight. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. And um, I'll keep you updated on South Texas Blues, on A Haunting We Will Go, on Monsters Among Us, The Phantom Killer, and everything else I'm working on. And I hope you have a great night. And I'll be back next week with a new guest and a brand new episode of Off to the Witch. So take care and have a wonderful night.